Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. With so many outdoor spaces to explore in New England, we forget that some of the best hikes and parks are right here in our backyard. And because we're starting to see some nice weather, so I'm sure many people like myself are getting a little antsy to get outside and explore the outdoors, which is perfect because today we're talking about trails and efforts to conserve Connecticut state parks. We're also going to be hearing about some efforts to make parks and green spaces more inclusive for all residents. And joining us now is the couple behind efforts to refurbish Batterson Park near Hartford and officially to make it a state park. Let's welcome Neil Connors and Allison Cappuccio, who are co-founders of the Batterson Park Conservancy. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Thank you. And we also have Phil Burge Lieberman with us as well, who's the Associate Professor in Residence at the Urban and Community Studies Program at UConn Hartford. Thank you so much, Phil, for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation. Let us know what's your favorite park, trail, or hike here in Connecticut. 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Allison, I want to start with you. Um, I want to ask, how did this journey start? How did you get interested in wanting to refurbish Batterson Park? Great question. This journey started for us about 2016. I grew up around here in this area, but my grandparents passed. We moved in to Batterson Drive, which is sitting with water across the way, and Learned very quickly, there is a deep history about it. <laughs> and when we moved here, we had come from West Hartford, Hartford area. And my husband, now, now my husband, Neil, um, was a big runner in Elizabeth Park. And I was really excited for him to just come get to try Batterson. Like, it's New Britain. Give it a chance. It's going to be great. Go around the pond. And he came back the first day and said he couldn't go around the pond, that there were no sidewalks and it was closed. <laughs> so thus began a journey for us in 2017. Um, I think you can. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that that is certainly the way to find out that the park yeah. needs to be refurbished. So, Neil, can you talk about that experience and also sort of the background history of Batterson Park? You know, why was this? Um, how did you guys discover that this park was shuttered in the first place? Sure thing. Well, uh, among the um, discoveries that, you know, I made you know, firsthand of running into a closed fence, uh, the neighbors who, you know, I'm a little uh, extroverted who I met as I moved here all like to talk about how they used to go to the park it had just closed we missed uh by you know we just missed the water ski competition and uh you know the families there and uh on the fourth of july and so you know i came from uh you know the, the west end of uh you know west hartford and i used to run in elizabeth park and so um just not having a way to get around the the park got me very curious as to why you know it was closed to access why pedestrians couldn't get in there and uh we you know uh decided to start looking into the subject and um we you know found out it had been closed in 2015. 
Yeah. The year before we moved, it was closed. Um, and as we dug into it, the history of it is similar to a lot of Connecticut in some ways. It's who knows how this got this way. But the fact of the matter is it used to be a reservoir owned by the MDC in one of seven areas. So in back in 1920s, the MDC translated trans it to Hartford. So it's owned by the city of Hartford, right. yet it is now throughout time now smack in the middle, literally split between Farmington and New Britain. So right. I'm sure you can imagine towns trying to communicate and revitalize has been part of some of the reason difficulty around it, just it's laying in disrepair. Right, precisely. Um, it, it lacked a constituency in Hartford. It was located in Farmington and uh, you know split between New Britain. So the folks who were using the park and, and who saw it every day um, sadly, we're not the ones who were in the position to advocate for it. And we're going to dig into that process in a little bit, but I do want to ask too, you know, you're both very experienced community organizers and, and a- activists. So why did you choose this park in particular to advocate for? Okay, um, I'll start. But the, the number one reason for me is as I was exploring the, the area and trying to figure out my way around the park, I bumped into Camp Current. There are 600 kids uh, at that uh, camp from Hartford who are, you know, playing and uh, making noise and having a great time across the street from the park, right? And furthermore, when summer kicks in, it's like the secret garden. They cannot even see across the street. They don't know there's a beach there. And, you know, the institutional memory of the kids using the beach had faded uh, to the point where, you know, uh, most of them, again, had no idea there was a massive beach across the street. And, you know, Camp Curran does a fabulous job with their swimming pool. They uh, really promote swim instruction. And, you know, the director of Camp Current was very, uh, you know, emphatic that if Batterson Park were open, even just for passive use, the kids could cycle through there throughout the day, creating more capacity for the kids. Um, and that conversation really just put a bug in my bonnet to organize around, you know, the three communities to see if we could at least get it reopened for passive use, right? And so with that bug in your bonnet, how did you all start to attempt to repair the park? Can you sort of walk us through, pun kind of intended there, um, how that all started? Sure, I'll go back. It's, it's been a journey. So in, we're going to go a high level, but we're welcome to dig in the weeds of questions. So I guess 2017 was when we started agitating around what we could do, reaching out, how to get involved and advocate more for the park. Um, we ended up meeting with Harper Pratt Group, it's their Parks and Recreation Advisory Committee, and we were advised through them to move towards a conservancy model, um, which was extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, like Neil was saying, there's not current advocates with Pratt that are actually with Batterson. You have to be a member of resident of Harper to do so, but they were kind enough to advise us in what direction to go and give us some resources and from City Councilwoman Rossetti to Marilyn Tremaine. Mm-hmm. And, so uh, we got lots of help from City Hall. Mm-hmm. They uh, advised us to form a conservancy modeled after Elizabeth Park because, like, you know, that's a, a, a standard of excellence in the city. Um, we then COVID struck right after we were uh, granted our formal status. Um, it was unfortunate. We kind of had to move meetings remote. We weren't able to meet at the park anymore. Um, so that was pretty difficult. But, you know, then um we were able to meet with state leaders such as matt ritter and also city leaders from farmington and new britain um courtesy of matt ritter at the lob so it really was an effort of getting you know emails phone calls contacting our city and state leaders and then they you know were very receptive to citizens wanting to meet and see what we could do you know um and and help out one point we were discussing a gorilla mow where we just everyone shows up with their lawnmower and uh, mowed the park. They advised me that would not be the best advocacy, though. 
Well, hilariously, yeah. I was actually going to ask you if you did actually start to mow it yourself, because I want to ask both of you, too, you know, as of right now, what does the state of the park look like? No, my lovely lawyer husband knows better and asked if he could be a gorilla mower. And the answer was no, resigningly. So the labor unions wouldn't be pleased. But so that hasn't happened. But they have, Harper has started taking care of her mowing a few times mm-hmm. a year. Um, yeah. The park, the, the the construction has actually begun. Uh, the the they're removing asbestos from the buildings. The buildings are to be demolished uh, by this month or next. And the uh, city of Hartford um, has indicated the park will be open for passive use this summer. So hooray! Great news for everyone. Um, but you know, right now there's a lot of work being done at the site. It's it could be uh, season two of uh, you know um, Chernobyl. It, it, it's a bit uh, disrepair, but. Um, it's moving along. There is progress. So that's great. I mean, I did see season one of Chernobyl. So that's quite the image yeah. you, you just planted in my head here. So Neil, I would love for you to sort of also talk us through what the conservancy looked like. And then I believe at some point you actually had to disband it. Why was that? Well, we um, went through the city of Hartford, uh, City Hall, like I said, right before COVID. Um, we were obliged to have a board made up of uh, Hartford, New Britain, and Farmington residents. We got together um, a bunch of advocates. We met monthly for about a year and a half. Um, Mild success in fundraising, great success in advocacy, in my uh, opinion. Um, We did run into trouble when the uh, group was, our memorandum of understanding was rescinded um, after essentially the relationship broke down with the city. I I partially blame COVID. I also, um, as City leaders said at the, uh, at, at the you know um, state house the other day or the other week when they announced the big announcement that it's going to be a uh, state park that this project was essentially too big for one municipality to take on. Um, even with the conservancy trying to push around the edges, we would have had to raise you know enormous funds and taken probably five to ten years to ramp that up. So a different approach, I suppose, was needed. Yeah. And I was going to say, too, you know, from the moment you ran into that fence to having these conversations about policy and you're also talking about funding and, and determining who has um, access to this, was this whole process a lot more complicated than both of you thought? Let's start with Neil. Um, yes, we uh, I listened to a podcast uh, in uh, late 2016, and um, I'm a big Obama fan and old Obama organizer, and he was Essentially, like, hey, if you're not too pleased with what's going on right now, pick something local, uh, simple that no one can disagree with, right? And I was like, well, bringing back a beach from the kid for the kids, literally, no one can disagree with it. But uh, there are nuances of Connecticut politics that we've learned throughout this. You know, people don't like things in their backyards. People are uh, tend to be maybe afraid or don't understand people from other neighboring communities. People um you know have their own opinions and uh regard their funding and and you know don't necessarily want to share so um it became a complicated process but thankfully we had the the guiding hand of the uh, founder of elizabeth park conservancy she was enormously helpful um and you know we had some great people guiding us for a while and i was gonna say really quickly allison was there anything that jumped out to you how complex it was i think (laughs) i we're both heavily involved in the local community and our local politics and i think I guess I was naive in thinking that this would just flow through. Who could disagree with a pond that will just bring it back and it'll be amazing? Like, and it was much more complex because there are a lot of different voices and parties involved and just priorities, priorities, politics, et cetera. So the fact that we've been doing this since 2017 is is truly shocking in some ways <laughs> to both of us. And 
yes, they're getting demolished now, but it has been surprising. I want to bring I want to bring in uh, Phil Burge Lieberman, who is the associate professor at uh, UConn for their urban and community studies. Uh, Phil, you've been listening to what Neil and Allison has been talking about. So can you uh, respond to to anything that jumped out to you so far? Sure, sure. Yeah, the 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 conservancy model that that they talked about with their uh, conservancy for Batterson Park is is typically now the model that cities and states go with. Um, cities, for the most part, municipal governments stopped really adequately funding parks back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s when uh, park maintenance became too expensive. Um, it was you know when state city budgets are are shrinking and they have a limited amount of money to spend just like they do now they they decide on what to fund and you know parks were always on a, a low priority and so parks fell into disrepair and the private conservancy model really began in the 1980s with the central park conservancy uh the stepping in and doing what the city couldn't do right and so they sought out funding and they improved the park and that's the model that basically every uh city around the country is following so connecticut's doing what really everyone else in the country is doing, um, following that conservancy model. And how have we seen urban park use change here in Connecticut over the last couple of years? Do you think there was a massive change? Um, I'm fairly new to Connecticut, so I don't know what it was like before I got here. I think that um, what we saw was prior to COVID, park usage was sort of on a, on a regular, normal trend of, you know, the people who live nearby would use the park. Um, I think when we when COVID came, we saw a lot more people getting out and using parks. Uh, we we know from the data on you know the the CT trail census and, and other uh, reports out that are out there that we know that during COVID, when everybody was in their homes and couldn't go to work and couldn't go to the gym, they wanted to get outside and socialize. And where could that be done? That could be done in urban parks. So we saw um, you know a renewed interest in urban parks coming out of this pandemic. And I want to also talk about how does location play into this when people are deciding how these parks will be utilized, especially you have a space like Batterson Park that straddles you know, three different areas. You know, how does that play into this? Yeah, Batterson Park is, is tricky because of the different you know, municipalities that are um, the, the, where, the, where the park is and, and you know, Hartford being the owner of it. So I think that's a tricky one. But in, in most parks, uh, that are owned in a in a municipal by the city itself, right? Located within the city, we see that uh, park usage is really primarily by the people who live nearby. Uh, we see that the funding uh, for the conservancies is different depending upon where parks are. Uh, parks that are in wealthier neighborhoods tend to have more resources to more people who have with more resources to donate to these parks. So we see those parks getting really a lot more funding than some of the other parks in, um, you know, poor neighborhoods. And how do you think parks influence the communities around them? I think there can be positive and negatives depending on where we're talking about. Yeah, I think when we're talking about parks influencing the communities around them, what we have to look at is uh, the condition of the park. We have to look at what what's called the cues to care in uh, the design world. We have to look at things like the lighting fixtures. We have to look at the benches. We have to look at the trash receptacles. We have to look at all of the the elements of the park and see what condition they're in. And if a park is you know has broken down benches or there's graffiti on the tennis courts or the lighting's out, people aren't really going to use that space because it's going to the perception is it's going to be unsafe. And so we need to really 
um, up the ante a little bit and start improving the conditions of those parks, just like, you know, the Madison Park Conservancy is trying to do, where opening up those roads, taking down some of those fences, getting people out on those uh, trails again. Well, and then you just mentioned sort of the perception of safety plays a huge part in how a park is used. And, and because you know, and, and there are so many variables where home values can also be increased, which can lead to gentrification of these neighborhoods. Uh, Phil, is there a way to prevent this way or this type of displacement? Yeah, the thing is, gentrification is not inevitable. It really comes down to choices. And so there's a a fairly recent phenomenon in, in the design world called just green enough, right? And so we look at park restoration and we have to ask a question. We have to look at the intention. Are we restoring a park so it's attractive for real estate developers or are we restoring it to benefit the existing residents? And depending upon the intention there, we can it can lead to gentrification or it can really lead to um, preserving the character of the community. So uh, just green enough by, by going in and restoring you know, certain elements of the park to control flooding, for example, um, in the community. But really keeping the character of the community intact is really essential. And I, I think with, you know, what's going on at Batterson Park Conservancy, what's going on up at the Keeney Park Sustainability Project, I think there are in other, you know, conservancies in the city of Hartford, I think there are efforts to uh, involve local communities in the decision-making process and not just having, you know, a public meeting and checking a box saying we sought community input but really listening to the community, involving them in the process and in the design process, I think can go a long way to making sure that we don't end up with this green gentrification. And Allison, with what Phil just said, how do you think this will influence the community? You know, the Batterson Park is being refurbished. We have a sort of a soft opening date for this summer. So how do you think that will impact the community around the area? Me too. I, Phil has perfectly mentioned that because my first thought was what I failed to mention is that we were also investing in Batterson because it is the only beach in Hartford County, a publicly accessible beach that people can enjoy and use to that to that extent. Um, what? <laughs> what was your <laughs> um, And I think the great part about it in terms of public access, it's been something we've been thinking about from day one. As Neil said, Camp Current, the case from Camp Current is the longest standing free camp for children in the country um, should be supported. So there's already that interest, but there's two different commuter lots and public transit at both ends of the park, basically. Um, one near the Yukon side and one near 84. And while there's no sidewalks currently to reach the park, it is less than a quarter of a mile to actually make it there. So they're already on the fast track route. It's actually already accessible. And it can connect it all together for people to come in from Harper and actually be enjoyed. So the hope is to make it publicly accessible and easy. Um, and Phil, we, and Phil, we've got Go about a minute left, but I just want to ask too, you know, what does it look like to parkify neighborhoods? You know, how can we reimagine ways to use abandoned spaces like underpasses and alleyways? And, you know, we're talking about abandoned green spaces like Batterson Park. You know, how can these spaces be utilized better? I think there's there are efforts underway uh, to try and make some of these vacant lots and these, these sort of abandoned spaces green again. Um, Keeney Park Sustainability Project, along with the Hartford Land Bank, have worked out an arrangement with the city where uh, farmers can can acquire city-owned properties and start to build community gardens on them. I think that anytime we can put more green space in the city uh, for the local residents, I think we should be doing anything that that we anything in our power to have that happen because I think it's we know that there are profound uh, public health benefits, both physical health and mental health. Uh, for those residents using those green spaces, just having access to it, just being able to visualize it and see it 
helps improve people's mental state and physical state by getting out and going for a walk in their local park. You've been listening to Neil Connors and Allison Cappuccio. They're co-founders of Batterson Park Conservancy, as well as Phil Burge Lederman, uh, who's associate professor in residence at the Urban and Community Studies Program at UConn Hartford. Thank you all three for your time today and helping us understand the process of the Batterson Park uh, Conservancy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up next, we'll be talking about how to make green spaces more inclusive for everyone. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today is all about being outdoors and lacing up those hiking boots to hit up your local trails. One question does come to my mind, though, is are outdoor recreation activities inclusive? Is it something that anyone can do and feel comfortable doing? Luckily, we have someone here who can help answer those questions. Amy Hernandez is an outings leader at Latino Outdoors. It's an organization that strives to create a world where all Latino communities enjoy nature as a safe, inclusive, and welcoming place. And speaking of a welcoming place, welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Absolutely. And a reminder for our listeners that please let us know if you have a favorite hiking trail here in Connecticut. Give us a call 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Amy, I want to talk about how did you get to be a part of this community? You know, how, Where did your interest in outdoor recreation start? Yeah, so I think, you know, throughout my childhood, I've been lucky to have parents that have the adventurous spirit them, themselves. So, um, I grew up camping, hiking, uh, chasing waterfalls, <laughs> all the good stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I was raised in Connecticut. I very much have enjoyed um, recreating outside. And so in my initial use of Instagram, I just started posting pictures of myself hiking. Um, and I got the request from Latino Outdoors after hashtag uh, Latino Outdoors um, being included in one of my posts. Uh, so they reposted one of my um, my posts on Instagram. And yeah, I, I did not know about the organization prior to that. So it kind of led me down the rabbit hole of finding out what this organization is, learning about its um, founding in the L.A. County 
of um, California and then how they've spread nationally, um, but then also engaging and, you know, writing sort of a love letter to Hartford um, in the direction of Latino outdoors um, and just having that desire to have an organization like that here in Connecticut. I will never be not impressed with how powerful a hashtag could be. And that's I know. amazing. <laughs> hashtag go outside, people. Um, you and so you know you 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 just mentioned that you wrote this you know lovely love letter about Hartford and and how you know the population here, the Latino population, is growing throughout our state and also nationwide. So can you talk about this need for a way to connect the population to outdoor recreations? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, Hartford is very much um, <laughs> a very Latino uh, populated city. So we're, I, I believe, based off of the last census, it's really minority majority. And um, we do have such a heavy um, presence of the Latino community in Hartford. Uh, so I think that when we look at participation in outdoor spaces, you know, a lot of our state parks or land trusts tend to be in more rural, suburban areas. And then when we look at the demographics of um, where we see Latino communities, it tends to be in more urban areas. So there is a disconnect with distance, uh, with regard to distance. I think something that Phil said earlier, which I was, you know, excited to hear was about the correlation with park usage and um, distance to the community. So most of the people going to parks are the ones that live near them. And if we have the majority of those parks out in the suburbs and in the rural areas, then you know the vast majority of those people um, will not be Latino just based off of, off of our demographics in Connecticut. Um, so Latino Doors is really striving to um, bridge that gap, right? And, and bring people out there and show them even though this is not in your immediate backyard, this pertains to you. You belong here as well. And so you you mentioned the disconnect, and that's something that Phil mentioned earlier as well. And and I, I do believe some say that the outdoors does not discriminate. But do you think that's true? Are our outdoor spaces really inclusive? <laughs> um, you know, certainly I've seen a change after the pandemic. Um, I think prior to the pandemic, so when we first started, um, our chapter here in Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, you can see it in terms of access, right? Um, in order to get to some of the parks that we have here in Connecticut, you really do need to be a commuter. You need to have a car um, to be able to access that. Um, one of the principal goals of, of Latino Outdoors in, in terms of our advocacy is for access. Um, and so having parks like Batterson, which is very exciting, <laughs> um, be so close to um, fast track bus routes, um, that increases our ability to have more access for populations that you know, aren't necessarily um, a part of the larger commuter base, right? And, and so it's easier for people to be able to partake. No, so we, we talk about sort of disconnection and also inclusivity. Can we also talk about the public health aspect of this, which is also something that we spoke of really briefly um, in the first segment? You know, we know that being outdoors and, and doing, um, you know, recreational activities have both physical and mental health benefits. But if people don't feel comfortable or they don't feel safe engaging in these activities, they could be miss missing out on those benefits. You know, what are, what are your thoughts about the public health aspect of this? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we do after every outing is a survey where we um, discuss whether or not our events and our activities are helping um, encourage participation outside um, and whether or not people's belief in the the wellness gain or the um, improvement in their well-being and health um, has been sustained or increased by our activities. And I, every time we've done this, at least in all of the outings I've um, co-led or attended myself, um, it's always a very positive answer. I don't think anyone's ever said no from that. But, you know, it, it is important to be in an actual community space where you feel welcome. So um, I think that's why it's so important to have events and communities and organizations like Outdoor Afro, um, Brown Girls Climb, Latino Outdoors, because when you're outside hiking by yourself, you know, personally as a very brown, larger bodied woman, um, if I'm out there on my own, I have experienced microaggressions outside, um, unfortunately, you know, and I, I think for the most part, the hiking and outdoor community is relatively kind and friendly, but, you know, it can occur and it can make you feel uncomfortable. So when you're in a group setting um, with people who have similar backgrounds to you, similar culture to you, it, it can be very encouraging, very motivating to be outside and then to have that gain in wellness. Well, and thank you so much for sharing that experience. And, and I know you just touched on it too. You know, the, the you know having these smaller groups of people who look like yourself, it's a very sort of comforting uh, experience. Can you just uh, dig a little bit more deeper for me there where it's an obvious question, but why is it important for for um, these groups to to feel comfortable and to see people who look like them that are doing these outdoor recreational activities? Yeah, I think especially in the States, there is a very <laughs> formal type of outdoor community, right? Um, when we see advertisements from, um, I don't know, uh, throwing out random brands, but like Columbia and Patagonia, and, and you're looking at all this sports equipment, you know, it could come across as there's a very specific type of person that is the outdoors person. Um, and it can also come across as like a very expensive type of recreation. Um, so being able to have, you know, resources like Latino Doors where, you know, our events are all meant to be accessible. So we try to pay for all of the equipment if equipment's needed. Um, and we try to provide guidance if needed um, to ensure that people can <laughs> fully participate. But, um, you know, that, that, in itself um, bridges, you know, a kind of financial boundary that you may have with outdoor activities. Um, not everyone has a kayak and, you know, a truck that they could tow their their kayak around in. Um, so being able to provide that kind of stuff is um, really impactful. And then having people that look like you, I, I mean, I think we've seen it before and we continue to see it again, the more diversity we have um, in, in different positions, whether it's in outdoor recreation, whether it's in your career, um, in STEM, in, in politics, in leadership, um, we see more people relating and finally seeing themselves in that kind of role. Um, and so it, it is really just motivation and then um, feeling that that door being opened for yourself to be able to participate as well. 
And I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the financial barriers because I think that's an area that we tend to forget that you you need gear to to do a lot of these outdoor recreation and activities. Even something as you know, quote quote, simple as a hike, you still need you know good footwear so you don't damage your feet. Um, yeah. So that's like another area of inclusivity. Um, and so thank you for, for raising that. And sort of along the same lines, too, how, how do you also create sort of guided hikes and activities that are inclusive to all levels of expertise? You know, if an activity is listed as, as easy, moderate, or advanced, that could mean different things for different people. Absolutely. Um, and I think that goes even beyond, you know, difficulty in, in um, terrain, but also, you know, ableism plays into this as well, whether or not it could be accessed by someone who, um, you know, can't necessarily walk on a dirt path. So um, we tried to have a a variety of different events that would call to different people. um, And we are as explicit as possible in our descriptions. So um, one of our first events was um, a hike at one of the West, or not West Hartford, um, Farmington (laughs) Water Reservoirs, which is a paved path. It is a little hilly. So um, we include all of that terminology, paved, hilly, the length. Um, We try to estimate. So we'll always do a pre-hike or a a preview, right, of of what event we're going to host. And we try to capture the details of that so that we can give people an idea and explicit details on what they should expect at the activity. And that way they can kind of decide on their own whether or not it would um, be comfortable for them to participate. Um, but that's that's part of the training of Latino Doors as a national organization, having those um, kind of checklist items to ensure that we can properly guide people because we've been through that and we've described exactly what they should expect. And when you're on an event, if someone is feeling uncomfortable or overwhelmed, um, is that something you can help guide through, you know, help them guide through that, especially if they're a first comer or an amateur or just someone who is just trying to get on that trail, but they're feeling overwhelmed? Yeah, of course. Um, We try to always have two to three volunteers in every event. um, And that, that gives us the flexibility to kind of lean back and have someone in the back and um, allow the group to kind of move forward and cater to, you know, individuals who may need a little more help, a little more guidance. Um, but ultimately, we do carry every event at a family pace, um, whether it it's to stop and, you know, smell the roses, um, open up our eye naturalist and try to identify um, flora on the hike, or if it's to take a group picture, or simply to take a break. <laughs> um, we always use a family pace um, because we want everyone to feel comfortable. It should be, you know, entirely an enjoyable event. Um, it should never feel like a challenge, but yeah. Breaks are really important and always remember to hydrate. <laughs> always. <laughs> and so coming up next, we're going to be talking with um, Claire Kane, who's the trails director at the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. So we know that one of the benefits of connecting more people to outdoor spaces is getting more uh, community members involved in stewardship. So I want to ask you, Amy, you know, what does that look like? Are you seeing more people getting involved and wanting to be a part of this? Oh, so much more. Um, So we started our chapter in 2019, October, um, and obviously we got 
a bit shut down by March 2020, which was pretty soon into our chapter's um, history, but uh, that's that's okay. We did see a massive increase in people coming out to parks, and I mean, all people, right? Everyone's noticed this. Um, but because of that, um, it's generated so much more interest, and we've had um, fully sold out, fully booked um, events, and um, we've had a, at least three more volunteers sign up um, to be a part of our chapter. And we're always looking for more support and more participation. Um, but yeah, it's been awesome to see just the turnout that we've had since. And so we got about a minute left, Amy, but I would love to ask you if there are some events coming up that Latino Outdoors will be hosting. And if people want to get involved, how do they get in contact? Yeah, definitely. So um, we currently have two events in the works. Um, early this summer, look out for an indoor climbing event. Um, it'll be entirely free. And uh, we will also be booking a uh, kayaking event in August, um, which will also be completely free. So you can find out about this on our Instagram at LO Connecticut um, and also latinooutdoors.org to learn more about our organization. And you should be able to find our events there as well. Well, thank you so much for that, Amy. We've been talking with Amy Hernandez, who's been sharing her outdoor experiences with us. She's an outings leader at Latino Outdoors. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Amy. Thank you. And coming up next, our guest is from the Connecticut Forest and Park Association, and we'll be chatting about the importance of park maintenance and preserving those outdoor spaces. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping straight back to our conversation about the outdoors with Claire Kane. She's the tra Trails Director from the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Thank you so much, Claire, for joining us this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. And actually, right before we start our own conversation, I want to take a quick call from Stephen from Chester, who would like to share his thoughts about the trails. Stephen, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Uh, I just wanted to share some uh, backpacking or hiking trails in Connecticut, which are really uh, fantastic that people may not have experienced before. The New England Trail, or NET, goes through Connecticut and, and continues uh, all the way up to New Hampshire. Uh, and there are campsites along the trail, beautiful views uh, along the trail, like La Mention Mountain, I mean, you get these, these vistas that you didn't even think were here in Connecticut, but they, they do exist. If, if, if you're into kind of mountaintop views and cliffs, uh, that, that's a pretty place to go. And Michael Ledges in Durham is also uh, very, very uh, enjoyable. And, and the only other one I would plug, which is also a connecting trail, would, of course, be uh, you know, a, a hiking on the Appalachian Trail, which you can in the western part of the state. Uh, and there are also places to camp, and it's a good way to dip your you know, toe into the Appalachian Trail if you just hike a few sections in Connecticut. 
Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for the plug and painting that amazing picture. I know what I need to do this summer is to hike those little gems in Connecticut as I'm starting to learn. Uh, Claire, do you want to respond to what Stephen painted? Uh, is that something that, yeah, that should inspire people to go do? Oh, absolutely. The New England Trail is an incredible treasure right here in Connecticut. Our organization, the Connecticut Forest and Park Association, we are the Connecticut maintainer for the New England Trail. So it's near and dear to our heart. Um, we have about 120 miles of the New England Trail in Connecticut before it goes on up into Massachusetts and connects to New Hampshire. And the New England Trail, you know, it follows the Trap Rock Ridgeline, just like Stephen was saying, the views out to the west off of that ridgeline are beautiful. And the trail connects from Guilford down at the Long Island Sound all the way up through Suffield. So it connects a number of communities. Um, and even though you can get up and get these great views, you know, the New England Trail is really accessible to, to all different kinds of people. So, you know, you don't have to be a hardcore hiker to get out and experience those great views. The New England Trail is really, um, in many ways, a community trail. So we have the benefit of you know, one of the nation's national scenic trails right here in the center of Connecticut. Uh, Stephen also mentioned the Appalachian Trail, which is our, our sister national scenic trail in the state. And both offer great opportunities to, to connect to the outdoors. And Claire, you know, a huge part of what you do at the Connecticut Forest and Park Association is keeping our parks maintained. And I actually recently learned that we have over 800 miles of hiking trails here. And that feels like a lot of miles to uh, to maintain. So what does that look like? Yes. So uh, we have 825 miles in the Blue Blaze hiking trail system. And our organization recruits volunteers who become stewards of, of different sections of those trails and do the regular upkeep and maintenance. And we provide training for them. But they're they're the real heroes out there on the ground, making sure that the trails are open and clear and you know, those bridges you find back in the woods, those are those are built by volunteers, rock steps that they put in, making sure all the signage is up. So it's an incredible uh, effort by our volunteer community, people who really care about stewardship and making uh, the outdoors welcoming and safe and um, helping point people in the right direction. And I would say that, you know, for, for being such a small state, Connecticut is a, a trail mecca. So our our organization maintains the 825-mile Blue Blaze hiking trail system, but that's certainly not the limit of trails that are here in Connecticut. Our trails tend to be, you know, hiking only. They're more, um, you know, just kind of more narrow trails in the woods. But there are trails in our local towns, on land trust properties, in our state parks and forests that are not part of our system that are you know, part of the trail profile of Connecticut. And there are really so many options out there for folks to get outside and, and explore the natural places near them. Yeah, I actually, I now that you say that, I do find myself, you know, driving around sort of randomly seeing a trail and wanting to stop and, and check it out, but there's no parking. So maybe that's something else. Oh. To work on. <laughs> uh, and something else I want to talk about, too, is uh, coming up is the Connecticut Trail Day. Can you tell us about, um, you know, what is Connecticut Trail Day and how can they and we participate? So Connecticut is so in 
is so special nationally for being able to host the most Trails Day events uh, anywhere in the country. So National Trails Day is a national movement to get people outside the first weekend in June. And the program uh, kicked off in 1993. Right off the bat, Connecticut was on board with this program and we've really taken it uh, and localized the event and created Connecticut Trails Day. This event um, has grown over the years. Uh, we're to a point where there are over 200 events that happen the first weekend in June here in Connecticut. That's more than anywhere else in the country. And there are events really for, for anyone and everyone who wants to get outside and go on a guided event. So if you're a first timer, you have a family, you're looking for a way to explore a new place, this event is a great way to kind of dip your toe in and and you know learn a new skill or go to a new place to explore a little bit more. We have events um, that are hiking events, walking events, biking events, boating events. It's really the whole spectrum. And events are in a hundred different towns uh, in Connecticut. So there's we're really in all corners of the state, and our organization really acts as a statewide coordinator. So all of these events are led by local groups, local volunteers, uh, partners who really want to invite people to their special place. Maybe it's a, a new trail that they've built, a preserve they want to open up to the public, uh, a, special, um, a special place that has a unique story that they want to share. So Connecticut Trails Day has become this platform and opportunity for not only local groups to really um, highlight what's special in their community, but to invite people in and, and give them a safe and guided experience so they can feel comfortable coming back or exploring new places. Something that I regularly hear from folks is, you know, I want to go outside, I want to go for a hike, but I don't necessarily know where to go, or I'm a little bit worried about getting lost once I'm back in the woods. And Connecticut Trails Day offers that opportunity to go with a local expert, to go with a group and meet some community members and to help build that confidence. Um, so, you know, if you go back, you'll kind of know where you're going and maybe have that, um, that increased confidence to go out and explore all of these great trails we have in Connecticut. So if you visit trailsday.org, uh, we have a, a site there where you can look at an interactive map and see where events are around the state. And then you can also see all of the listing of events. And we've tried to make the site really easy to use. So if, if you're looking for a certain type of event or you're only available on Saturday, or you know if you were looking for a family-friendly event and you wanna bring your dog, you can, you can kind of sort the events that way and find what will be a good fit for you. Um, so we love Connecticut Trails Day. It's, it's our biggest event. It's a great opportunity to, to welcome everybody outdoors and it's a great time of year to be outside. So we're, we're really jazzed to have, um, to have this event and we encourage and welcome everyone to come out and be a part of it.
Well, I just want to say I think we're we're you just jazzed everyone in the studio to want to go out to go on a hike. I mean, this entire conversation I think is jazzing us all up. So thank you. For that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, no, we've got about two minutes left, but I do want to ask. You know, you've mentioned so many great events coming up, um, ongoing. So many community members that are helping maintain the trails and all of that kind of jazz. So can you tell us about the funding that that comes in to improve Connecticut's parks and trails? Because I can imagine that's probably that plays a big role with what you can do. Oh, it certainly does. So, you know, we're a nonprofit organization and and we do a lot of advocacy work um, to make sure our trails and parks are well maintained and we have the funding to do that important work. Um, You know, one of the the great initiatives that uh, we've been lucky to be a part of is the Passport to the Parks. And, you know, Phil mentioned earlier um, how attendance has really increased, and and it absolutely has. So park attendance, state park attendance, has doubled um, since 2016. So it's gone up from about 8.5 million to 17 million visitors in 2022. So an enormous increase in enjoyment of our state parks, but that also means we need to, you know, increase our funding and the Passport to the Parks is bringing in and generating about 20 million a year for park maintenance. And it ensures that Connecticut residents don't have to pay an entrance fee. So it really opens the door um, on our state parks and makes them very, uh, you know, accessible to everyone. But those places need to be maintained. And so we're really pushing for 15 new park maintainers and park staff at the at Connecticut Deep to help maintain these places. Um, so there's a real need to increase the park staff so that these places are safe, that folks feel, um, you know, they know where to go, they're welcome, they're clean. And so that's that's an initiative that we're we're really um, supporting, and that's some final budget negotiations going on right now to to bring those new park staff on. So we're we're really encouraged by that. Um, and we've also seen an increase in funding for recreational trails in Connecticut, which has been fantastic, and that helps us do all of this great work. Not only the maintenance, but being able to have events like Connecticut Trails Day and being able to do the work to make sure these trails are in good shape, they're sustainably built, and folks know where to go when they get out on the trail. You've been listening to Claire Kane, who is the Trails Director with the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Thank you so much, Claire, for this very jazzy conversation today. Thank you, Catherine. Happy hiking. Um, I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Jean Amatruda. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.